Well, good morning. I want you to turn in your scripture to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Part of that which you saw on the video before I came up is actually from the confession of faith that we have adopted as Southern Baptists, known as the Baptist Faith Message. Uh, that is precious enough, knowing that God's word is inerrant, infallible, will never lead us astray, that at True McConnell University, all of our professors, regardless of their discipline, must sign the Baptist faith and message and hold to it in its entirety in order to teach at your university. And that is radically important because if you haven't watched the statistics uh, over what was just given in 2015 by Pew Research, we are at an alarming time in our culture. Uh, we already recognize that there is in much of our society a collapse going on. But many of us uh, don't recognize that the collapse is happening within our own Christian uh, groups as well. To give you an idea, Pew Research says that in 2015 there were 2.18 billion Christians on earth, that's of all denominations, and by the next 35 years there will be 2.92 billion. That is a significant growth rate and an encouraging word, especially that is going on in places where your church is this morning, much of it in places like Central and South America and in Asia and in Africa. And unfortunately, it is not true of Europe or of North America. In fact, at the same time at the growth rate, there were in, uh, in 2015 1.6 billion Muslims, the people of my former faith. By the same time in 35 years, there'll be 2.76 billion Muslims, and indeed, if statistics change just a little bit, you could actually see during our lifetimes the surpassing of Christianity by Islam as the largest religion of the world. Now, much of that is because of the birth rates in Western society have so plummeted that no longer are children seen as an asset of Psalm 127, but as a liability. But that is only half the story. We live here in Athens in a university town. So catch this next statistic. Over the same 35 years, one of the reasons why Christianity is not growing at the pace, in particular in the West, is that 106,110,000 Christians will walk away from Jesus in the next 35 years. 106,110,000 Christians that would be sitting in our pews today all across our evangelical world and in American churches will walk away from Jesus. You say, well, why are they doing that? It's not happening to the 65-year-old and up. That would only be 4% of those. It's happening to those who are in their college years. 83% of all of those who will walk away from Jesus out of 106 million will do so during their time of their collegiate life. It's when they're the most challenged. It's when their minds are most challenged. It's when their hearts are most challenged. And it is a challenge to you and I, Beach Haven, that where you and I reside and sit, you need to reach this generation if we are going to see revival. The question is, how do you see it? As you recognize the inerrancy of Scripture as you read it with the, the video that was in front of you, part of it is as a church simply sticking to the Word of God and believing every single syllable of it. And I think when you look at 1 Corinthians 16, there is a catch to what is revival. That is, there's a bridge that will be birthed into revival. And it is the word refreshed. Refreshed. 
I want you to read 1 Corinthians chapter 16 with me. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 13 through 18. And I want to speak to you on the idea of being refreshed in Jesus Christ. Verse 13, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. 1 Corinthians 16, 14, let all that you do be done with love. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanos, that is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. Oh, I'm glad about the coming of Stephanos, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, for what was lacking on your part, they supplied. Then watch this last verse, verse 18 of the paragraph, for they refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. If you know anything about salvation, and most of us in here do, you know and have experienced the word refreshed. It may not be the word that first comes to mind, but it is the word that Jesus himself uses in Matthew chapter 11 when he says to the people calling out in a public invitation of salvation, come unto me, all you who are weary, tired, heavy laden, burdened, and I will give you, it's the same word. The same Greek word is given here in 1 Corinthians 16, I will give you refreshment. Do you remember the day you were saved? Do you remember how the the sins were lifted off of your shoulders because you recognized Jesus placed it on his Did you taste and see that the Lord was good, that he removed your sins as far as the east is from the west, that you came from death to life, from bondage to freedom? Do you remember not merely the action of it, but even the feeling of it? That's the cause of Christ. That's the reason why we breathe and we live, not merely so we can taste of Jesus Christ, But when we walk out of these doors and to our next door neighbor or across the world, that they too may be refreshed. It's been a while since I've been with your pastor, David. David and I taught together at Southwestern. Uh, We were in evangelism and missions and we'd go across the world and his family and and, uh, was young at the time. So was mine, of course, at the same time. I used to have hair when he knew me back at Southwestern. He didn't. He had half his hair. I had three quarters of my hair, and that's why I look like I look today, is that uh, the the river was connecting with the lake back here, and gentlemen, a lot of us have to make a decision, comb over or Q-tip, right, what do you look like? I I look like the love child between a Saudi woman and Mr. Clean, that's what I look like now, (laughs) I didn't intend to look like it, but it's... All of a sudden, we find ourselves in Georgia, and can I tell you, There is an amazing movement of God that's happening in many people, especially the young people. I get to see it on a daily basis at Truett. Our students are going to, just this summer, New Mexico and Alaska and India. They're going to Thailand, London, Dubai, and Kenya. They're crossing the landscape. But while we're sitting here and we recognize the incredible things God's doing elsewhere, we have to first look and say, but what's happening in American churches? And to that, there's a more somber movement. But I am not a pessimist, and I hope you aren't either. You can be an optimist. 
you can recognize that not only is God not done with America, but our greatest days can be ahead if we'll simply bow our knees and bow our heads to the Lord God Almighty and surrender ourselves once again to Him. I'm not a pessimist. Pessimists are those who look to the wrong things in order to find hope. Pessimists are those who look to the wrong things to try to find hope. A lot of people look to politics to find hope. It's an odd thing to me because politics can't bring revival, right? The, the picture of a politician and politics you can see in the word. What is a politic? It is poly and ticks, many blood-sucking creatures. Or at least it feels that way sometimes, doesn't it? But here's the good news. Washington can't start revival, but neither can it stop revival. America will rise and fall as it always has upon her churches, upon whether we as Christians will stand up, surrender, and submit. And we always wonder, gosh, Lord, it seems like a difficult age, but this age in which we live is nothing uncommon. We're going to take a step back in time, 2,000 years, to the church in Corinth. Oh, it wasn't that great a time, was it, for Corinth? They had planted themselves. They had put a church together in a very hard place, in a very worldly place. It was a metropolitan area of all sorts of cesspool of sin, and they put themselves as a lighthouse of salt and light, and there they were, but they had fallen and succumbed to much of it themselves. You know it. If you actually look at a microcosm of 1 Corinthians, you see it, and it can become heartbreaking. The first four chapters of 1 Corinthians shows you how their principles had fallen off. The first two chapters, the Apostle Paul warns of their selfishness. And by the second two chapters, the Apostle Paul is warning them about their worldliness. Now what happens to any individual, any denomination, any church, any family that becomes both selfish and worldly? Well, it is the rest of the Corinthian epistle. Chapter 5, well, they're sleeping around with all sorts of people. Chapter 6, they're suing each other. Chapter 7, they're divorcing each other. Chapters 8 and 9, their minds have become desensitized. Chapter 10, some of them are worshiping false gods. Chapter 11, they're taking the Lord's Supper in vain. Chapters 12 through 14, those spiritual gifts that God has enabled upon each believer, they have paganized and made it like the world. You would think after chapter 14 that the Apostle Paul would simply give up on the Corinthian church, yet the greatest chapter on the resurrection found in any epistle is found in chapter 15. And that is part and parcel the thesis of what it's going to take for a church to be revived. You see, the reason why Paul writes to the Corinthian believers is he knows God's not done with them. How does he know it? Because the resurrection of Christ is true. The three greatest words ever uttered in the English language, he is risen means that God not only saves us, but he sanctifies us, and he certainly doesn't give up on us. And when we fall, he's there to pick us up. When, he, when we are broken, he's there to put us together. When we are of all sides of ilks and sides, God is there to be the centerpiece of our lives. And so the Apostle Paul, knowing such, begins a quest of refreshment. That refreshment will be that which would lead to revival. You'll see it later on. Well, what does it take then to be refreshed? Three items. Number one, if you look at verse 13, it takes vigilance. Just vigilance. 
you'll see it in two phrases in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. Watch, stand fast in the faith. Watch, defensive. Stand fast in the faith, offensive. Watch, it's about your principles. Stand fast in the faith. It's about your passion. What is the first thing you should do as an individual, as a family, as a church, What is the first thing you and I should do when the devil attacks us? It is not to attack him back. The first thing you and I should do is to go on defense. To guard each other. To guard your heart. To guard your family members. To guard your church members. Watch is the salient sound of an apostle saying, watch what's left. Guard your heart. Make sure you have the armor of God. Make sure you have the helmet of salvation. Make sure you have the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth. Make sure you are guarded because regardless of how many times you can block an arrow of the devil, it only takes once to get inside your armor and your hurt. Watch is a defensive term. Watch your pulpit. Watch your pew. Watch your deacon body. Watch who teaches in Sunday school. Watch. Why does the apostle begin this paragraph that is the beginning of the benediction of the book? Why does he begin it that way? You know, so many times, and the apostle Paul himself warns, there are wolves that come from the outside in. But sometimes, it is the fact that the church goes out into the world and corrupts a fallen world. Let me give you an example of it. If I were to ask you what one book has most influenced and paganized the mindset of America over, say, the last 200 years than any other book, and I'd submit to you, it was published in 1859. It was entitled The Origin of Species by Charles Darwin. In one fell swoop, Dr. Darwin takes God from the centerpiece of history and not merely moves them to the periphery and to the side, he takes them out of the equation. All of a sudden, we are going to believe that we are an accident. A blob created over millions, indeed billions of years, evolving, as it were, for no purpose, no meaning in life. You and I are sitting here today simply because of some evolutionary process that happened from single-cell organisms all the way to the complexities of now, but there's no reason why you're here. But nobody ever asked this question. Dr. Darwin, before you became a naturalist, before you ever got to the Galapagos Islands, what did you want to be? Oh, that's right, he wanted to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Dr. Darwin, what happened? Well, he was sitting in a pew just like you and I were doing this morning. And he was listening to a pastor who had literally compromised the word of God. And his pastor compromised it from Genesis. And his pastor compromised it from the very first verse, in the beginning God. And his pastor taught him to doubt the word of God more than desire the word of God. You see, the ugly truth of history isn't that Darwin gave birth to evolution. The ugly truth of history is the church gave birth to Darwin that gave birth to evolution. Sometimes you have to watch from wolves from the outside, but sometimes we have to recognize there are wolves from within that desire 
to take away the fellowship of the saints and make it something that's worldly. No wonder why the Apostle Paul said, watch, guard yourselves, but not merely about your principles, it's about your passion. Stand fast in the faith is about passion. And here's why that's crucial. Watch is defensive. Stand fast in the faith is offensive. Stand fast in the faith is about your passion because every relationship requires passion. You don't believe me? Gentlemen, you who are married here, go home this afternoon. Look your wife romantically in the eye and say this to her. Honey, I love you because I have to. Here's what's not going to happen tonight. Passion. It is not a have to to be part of a Christian life. There are a lot of Christians who endure faith, but there are few Christians who enjoy faith. Stand fast in the faith is a demonstration that you and I are in relationship with the one and true living God of this universe. And it's not merely about our head, it's also about our heart. Next month, my wife and I will be celebrating 18 years of marriage. And your pastor can tell us how you know that's a, a bit unique for us. See, my wife and I met on a mission trip. I was in the Czech Republic. The Czech Republic is in Central Europe. It is the most atheistic country in the world. 71% of its population do not believe in any sort of God whatsoever. So we were there in 2000 to plant a church. And I was on the southern border and and I was waiting to show the Jesus film, see if we'd have a harvest. And up comes my translator, who's now my wife. And in biblical terms, uh, she was hot. And so I lost it. My mind went blank. Not good for a preacher to be speechless. But I had to fly back over here. And we started to date the most unromantic way humanly possible, that is, by the Internet. That's the only way we could have. We were 4,000 miles apart. Well, I flew back over there in March. I knew I wanted to spend my life with her, and so before I flew back over there, I knew I wanted to marry her. But I wasn't going to fly over to Europe and spend $1,000 in order to ask a woman to marry me who was going to tell me no. I was going to spend money for that. I got that for free on this side of the ocean before. <laughs> and so my wife and I were chatting online one evening, and this was old school internet. Y'all remember old school internet where it was on your phone? You had to pay per minute. Sound like an alien was invading your home as the beeping sounds came all across. That was that internet. So I was speaking to my wife with AOL Instant Messenger, old school. And I said, Hannah, would you ever think of marrying someone like me? She said, well, that's between my Lord and I. I've got to go check his word. Click, she's off. It's over. I mean... It is awful. I, I'm thinking, gosh, there are places in the Bible I don't want her to go, right? And my palms are sweaty, and I'm staring at this blank screen, and I'm waiting for her to come back what seemed like an eternity. She finally comes back. She said, God spoke, and I said, great, what did he say to you? She said, 1 Samuel chapter 1. You can imagine how quickly I flipped over there. The person in the story, ironically, her name was Hannah, as my wife's name is Hannah, and this is the verse that God had given my wife from verses 16 and 17. God gives you the petition of your heart. And we knew we were going to be married, and I was so grateful God did not give her. Matthew 16, 23, get thee behind me, Satan, because you are an offense to me. 
you and I will not last in this thing called Christianity without passion. No relationship survives without passion. It certainly takes the head, but God didn't simply save the neck up. He saved from the neck down as well. And so the Apostle Paul warned a lot of the Corinthian believers had been swayed not by their thoughts going astray, but by their hearts going astray. Be vigilant. The first step, the first step in Americana seeing revival in our churches is simply don't give up. Second step, end of verse 13, the Apostle Paul adds to it with a flavor to it. Watch and stand fast in the faith, first half. Second is be brave, be strong. The old King James has a great way of poetically putting it, quit you like men. Now, you've got to take a step back, don't you, and say, well, hold on, Paul, who are you talking to? These people? You're telling the Corinthian believers to be brave and to be strong? Paul, you wrote the book. You were the one who said you're sleeping around here, you're suing each other there, you're divorcing each other there, you're following false gods there. Paul, you had all of that laid out chapter after chapter after chapter, yet right here, you put together somehow this note of encouragement, be brave, be strong, quit you like men. What are you thinking? A God-centered theology recognizes that God is never done and doesn't give up on his people. That's what he recognized. 1 Corinthians 15 is the declaration, oh death, where is your sting? That is not merely about the next life. That can be about this life. Now think about it. That means the Apostle Paul was dealing with hurting and broken and wounded people. And he said, I'm not giving up on you. Do you know why he said that? He lists three other people who said they wouldn't give up on him. Stephanos, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. And I'm not giving up on you. How many times have you heard the excuses of why people don't come to church? And how many times have you thought in the back of your mind, well, gosh, maybe they're just right. There are hypocrites in the church. Yeah, there are. There are hypocrites in every place of society. But can I tell you, as someone who came out of the Islamic faith, as someone who worshipped a false god the first portion of my life, and now worshipped the one true living God, can I tell you, I'd rather be with broken men and women in here than be by myself out there. I'd rather be discipled in here by people who may disagree than to be out there by myself on an island where the devil simply has target practice on someone who can't stand by himself. You see, the church is not merely optional. The local church is necessary for each and every one of us. The truth of Scripture is the 80-year-old needs the 8-year-old. And the 8-year-old needs the 80-year-old. We need each other. All of us, shoulder to shoulder and heart to heart, need each other. As scary as that may sound, because I know there's not only hypocrites in church, there are crazy people in church. You know it, don't you? There are crazy people at Beach Haven. You know that. If I were to take a step back and just say, just for a second, pause. Think of someone crazy in the church. You got them? Here's a hint. If there's no one in your head, it's you. You're it. You may not think you're it, but that's good news because that means you're loved 
and recognize that we are brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know what we need more than anything else now? Be brave. Be strong. It is a community system. Don't give up on each other. God's not done with you, and God's not done with the person sitting beside you. And here's the beautiful picture. Do you want to see when you take that understanding what happens? Read 1 Corinthians, and then read 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is a complete transformation. Do you remember the selfish people, 1 Corinthians 1 and 2? They are the most selfless people, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Remember the worldly mind, 1 Corinthians 3 and 4? Now they are ambassadors of Jesus Christ, pleading for others to come to him, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and following. Do you remember of all the mess that was in 1 Corinthians has been cleaned up in 2 Corinthians? It's the beauty of our God. It's the story of redemption. But many times I think we forget redemption is not merely for those who are lost. Second chances, third chances, and fourth chances are for those who are saved and hurting as well. Be brave. Be strong. And then in verse 14, he spends the rest of his passage for the third point. Be loving. Let all that you do be done with love. Do you notice there's no caveat to it? There's no condition to it. Do you recognize the great chasm between Christianity and every religion of the world is unconditional love? Growing up in Islam, chapter 2 of the Quran was memorized. Allah loves those who do righteous deeds. Did you hear it? It's conditioned. He'll love you if you do right. How radically different is that than Romans 5, that God manifests his love towards us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. No wonder why the gospel nugget found in 1 John 4 simply says in three words, God is love. It is the heartbreak of other religions that say that you have to appease the gods. It, it, it is the reincarnational aspects of Hinduism and Buddhism. It's the do-good attitude of Islam that can never be had. And all in one swoop in verse 14, let all that you do be done with love. I grew up up north. You probably can tell because I don't have an accent or mine is different than yours, however you want to look at it. I grew up in Ohio. To this day, I'm an Ohio State Buckeye. Don't worry, we don't win much, so we're not a threat to you anyways. And we're named the Buckeyes. Do you know what a Buckeye is? It's a useless nut. We named ourselves the Ohio State Useless Nuts. That's who we are. And I moved south. My brother and I pastored together down south, and I didn't know there was much difference between you and me. I didn't recognize the difference in the way we spoke, the way I grew up, the way I used to worship a false guy. I just didn't know much of that at all just because the people down south loved me. Now, it didn't take much uh, for me to move south. There were two theological words that drew me to the south, Daisy Duke. <laughs> and um, I, I, I came down south, and it, it was just... That, Southerners are the most innovative people in the world. Y'all know that. Southerners discovered milk. I am sure of it. They are probably somewhere between Athens and the countryside, two older men. 
and they're out uh, looking at their cows one morning, about 5 o'clock in the morning. One man looks at the other and looks at the cow and says, wonder what happens when you squeeze that. <laughs> we now have milk. And I moved south. Now, they wouldn't put a gun in my hand and go hunting. They wouldn't put a gun in a former Muslim's hand. But they took me snipe hunting. <laughs> Didn't know what that was till I had a burlap sack in the middle of a field. <laughs> but you know, the same time I moved down there, just about a year later, I moved my grandmother down. My grandmother, uh, Swedish, never spoke a lick of English in her life. We grew up speaking Swedish. And she didn't speak anything that they spoke. She did, never lived in the countryside, but we moved her down to a town of 118. And verse 14 came true. See, my grandmother was 91 years old and did not know Jesus. She was lost as could be. But the sweet people of the Wood Baptist Church not merely spoke, but lived. Verse 14. And because they lived it, at the age of 92, she placed her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And she was saved. Let all that you do be done with love. And then he just brags on those who are doing it. Stephanos, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. Well, who are they? Well, we know a little bit about Stephanos. Uh, Paul baptizes Stephanos. He doesn't baptize many people. But he, he has a special trait for Stephanos, not because he's the first believer in Corinth. There's probably three ahead of him. But he baptizes Stephanos, and he sees him as special. He invests in Stephanos. He disciples Stephanos. And because he does that, Stephanos likewise does the same in verse 15 where it says he devoted himself to the ministry of the saints. We know about a few more, Achaicus, Fortunatus. Who are they? We don't know. There's nothing inside of Scripture that ever mentions them again. There's nothing outside of Scripture in history ever mentions them again. So why would you mention them, Paul? Well, because on their tombstone, it was enough for them to know they served Jesus. And that should be enough for us. No one has to know our names, much less what we have done. All we know of these two men is they wouldn't give up. And Sunday after Sunday, they showed up into a hurt church and until it turned into revival. And then the Apostle Paul finishes the passage with a very unique statement. Many people pass by it without recognizing how important it is to our churches. Verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, For they refreshed my spirit. Well, hold on a second, Paul. I thought revival was for those who were broken and backslidden. Listen very carefully where we've made a mistake. Revival is not merely for those who are backslidden. For you who have served in Sunday school." being a deacon, pouring yourself into the doors of this church in vacation Bible school and every other realm that is in the back roads where nobody sees you. But you work and work. Harder than physical work is spiritual work. It is exhausting. It'll wear you down. It'll burn you out. And you need to be refreshed. I need to be refreshed. The more you serve Jesus the more you need, verse 18. After all, if the Apostle Paul needed it, what about us? And then he finally finishes up with the last statement. Therefore, acknowledge such men. 
Paul, almost catapulting us back in time, says, don't forget the past on your way to the future. You and I stand on the shoulders of giants. And the beauty of the future was planted by the crops of the past. The Apostle Paul knew that and bragged on them. True McConnell University, that's what I get to do. Every student has to take my course in history before they graduate from Truett. All I get to do is the end of verse 18, acknowledge such men and women. Martyrs of the faith. Heroes of the faith. Your pastor knows this very well. My favorite group to talk about is what we now call the Anabaptist movement. We just call ourselves Baptists. Back in the time of the Reformation, the Anabaptists were the martyrs. They didn't hide behind the state church. They were simply out there like sheep, ready to be slaughtered. Their whole goal was Matthew 28 to fulfill the Great Commission. One of the leaders of that movement was a young man by the name of Felix Montz. Felix Montz should not have even been in this world according to the world's standards. You see, he was the illegitimate son of a Catholic priest in his town in Zurich, Switzerland. Priests, of course, are not to be married, neither are they to have children. And there was Felix, because his house was right behind the Grossmünster Church, the largest church in the city of Zurich. The street he lived on was nicknamed Concubine Street. It's where priests went to sleep around. And he was birthed out of there, and you can imagine no one paid him much attention because he was an embarrassment to the head priest in the largest church in a key town and he grew up but all of a sudden his church changed pastors the new pastor believed in salvation by grace through faith the new pastor had cleaned up his life the new pastor had been saved he started to go to some bible studies in the Grossmunster church as he sat down he heard the gospel of hope and there he gave his life to jesus as he walked outside that church he recognized the rest of his life was to be poured into serving Jesus. So he did that. He defended the faith. He shared the faith. But the government officials despised him. He was breaking protocol. He was causing chaos in a town by having revivals. So they arrested him. The rest of his life looked like this. Preach the gospel, get arrested, get tortured, be told not to preach the gospel, be released from prison. Preach the gospel, get arrested, get tortured, be told not to preach the gospel, and be released. Get arrested, and on it went. So finally they had enough of Felix Montz, and they decided to execute him there in his town in Zurich, Switzerland. In January the 5th, 1527, at 3 p.m., the Chronicles write that he is released from his prison for one last time. He is paraded across the cobblestone streets of Zurich, where he is mocked. He is laughed at. He is scorned. The crowds are lined by the hundreds. They parade him right past the church where he got saved. And then he heard the calming voice of his mother. Mom, what would you do if your 26-year-old boy is about to give his life for the faith? You could certainly declare, Lord, deliver him, and that would have been a fair biblical statement, but not from his mother, Anna, who'd been led to Christ by his best friend. No, Anna just whispered into her son's ear, Felix, 
stand firm, Fields. Whatever you do, just stand firm. He walks right past her. He goes across the bridge. Underneath there is the Lemont River in downtown Zurich. It's where they're going to drown him. You start to see where he gets his boldness from, where his mother cries out louder, Felix, stand firm, Felix. Whatever you do, Felix, just stand firm. He crosses over that little bridge. Historians will tell you he turned to the right. They put him in a little dinghy boat. They put him to the middle of the river. And as they're casting his body into the river to be drowned one last time, he hears the voice of his mother. Felix, stand firm, Felix. Whatever you do, just stand firm. His life is snuffed out. He is buried in a common cemetery so nobody would know his name and nobody would recollect his heritage and everybody would forget about him. And yet, in Athens, Georgia, nearly 500 years later, therefore, acknowledge such If the Lord tarries his coming in 50 years, what will they say about us? What I hope they'll say about us is the same thing they said about Felix and his mother Anna. When all the world seems to be caving around, when the church doesn't seem to be on its best behavior, when there doesn't seem to be revival fires breaking out like they used to, church, just stand firm. Let God be God. Let the Spirit move. Hang in there. Serve Him faithfully. And let's see what He does if we'll simply be vigilant, victorious, and loving in the world that doesn't want us to. Let's pray.